Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Lovely to see you guys here. Greetings from Oregon, the great Pacific Northwest, where I come from. It's a joy to be out with you uh, here this morning and a joy to be with Pastor Tellus and Pastor AJ. And uh, you got to see uh, my wife and my peoples there for a moment. Uh, and uh, I bring you greetings from them as well. I've been married to my wife, Hannah, for 20 years now. And uh, yep, she's amazing. I'll share more about her here in a little bit. Um, but I also have four kids uh, from 17 down to nine, three boys and a girl. And uh, you might have noticed on that picture a couple of people that don't exactly look like they're from my DNA. And uh, so we have had the awesome privilege over the last 10 years of hosting just gobs of people in our house that have lived with us, and many of which have been from all kinds of countries, East Asia, Middle East, you name it, um, many of which have been unchristian that we've shared our life and the gospel with in the process. Um, but uh, yeah, we've got a student from Korea that's living with us uh, right now. Uh, and when this picture was taken, we actually had one of our amazing student leaders living with us. Uh, he's a soccer player at Oregon State. He's now pursuing a professional career, uh, but he was engaged to be married. Married and to give him as a little gift, like a, some free rent for a few months as he saved up uh, for the wedding. He lived with us, and uh, we were just one happy, multicultural, <laughs> melting pot of a family uh, together. So anyway, we, uh, we have a good time, and uh, I am really, really happy to be representing them and uh, bring their warm love and affection to you guys as well. Now, one of the cool things about coming to be here, especially in this season of Grace Covenant, um, is that my history in ministry, uh, I started as the lead pastor of Grace City Church. Solidarity to all the Grace Churches out there. Uh, I started at, at Grace City Church as the lead pastor 15 years ago when I was 27 years old. So when I watch, uh, when I watch a young man who is beginning to step into this transition of his leadership at uh, obviously a very similar age, um, it brings back a lot of memories. Now, I stepped into a church that was an absolute dumpster fire. And uh, what I, when I say that, you think I'm exaggerating. <laughs> um, the options were, and these were real options on the table, option A and the most obvious was to close the church and just like liquidate any assets that it had and just kind of move on with our lives because many were burnt out, hurting, and the church had shrunk so significantly. Uh, in the previous two years, uh, there wasn't a whole lot left. Option B was to take the unknown and unsuccessful campus minister and give him a shot at it. So that was me. I was, at, that, was that was me. I was like, hey, let's give him a shot. You can't do any worse. Turn the lights off when you're done, I guess. You know, that was kind of the, that was basically the handoff of how that went. So you guys, I, what I'm encouraged about, are in such a much healthier, mature, better, spiritually uh, vital, strategic, visionary position than we ever were. Um, and if it brings you any hope or any level of encouragement, because I know, I know this transitional process, and I know what it's like to walk in the shadows of leaders that have gone before you, um, and I know that Pastor, Bishop Brett now probably has one of the biggest shadows, you know what I mean, that uh, any leader could have. But I do know this, that God is faithful. And he is the senior pastor, chief shepherd of this church. And I also know that in transition, so many emotions can get stirred. If you've been about this church for a while, or if you're new to this church, it can be exciting, it can be a little scary, it can be a little anxious. But here's what I know, that life is full of transitions. Uh, but as God's people walk through them in faith and choose to honor and love one another well, God's kingdom advances. 
And it's these moments that are these prime opportunities to do just that, to love and to honor one another well. And I am just standing in great faith and anticipation that the foundations of this church are sure and they are strong and that your future is going to be good and pleasant. I really believe that for you. Um, And if there's any other encouragement I can bring, I'm basically like what TELUS will look like 15 years from now. So like, like, oh, really? Like, sorry. Yes, a bearded tall white guy from the Northwest is where he's headed. One of the reasons why I am most uh, enthusiastic about being here this morning is the series of teachings that you guys are in. Uh, called Lovesick. You're in this series called Lovesick, which is exploring our love lives and relationships on pretty deep levels. And oh my goodness, I've been tracking with all the teachings up to this point from Pastor AJ and Pastor Tellus. And I got to tell you, um, when I look at Tellus, I don't, he doesn't remind me of me when I was 27. He is significantly beyond where I ever was at that point in my ministry, for sure. The level of depth and wisdom coming already uh, out of this church has been quite substantial and super impressive. Uh, and what I'd like to contribute to the conversation is just the reinforcement of the idea of lovesick, which is a beautiful, perfect description of exactly what is wrong with y'all. Yeah, I'm from Oregon, but I'll drop a y'all. Don't, don't trip. I got it. I will do it. Sweet tea and y'all, the best two gifts of the South that we should all just embrace with an open and warm heart. You know what I mean? Yeah, there is something deeply wrong with us. There is something deeply wrong with the human condition. And every philosophy and every culture and every religion and every individual has tried to take their stab at it. Exactly how do we describe what's wrong? We all have this internal sense Things are not as they should be. I am not as I should be. But what is it? And some people say we're just uh, moral failures, that we failed at God's law. Some of us say we just lack self-esteem and we need more positive people in life. And if we could just reduce the toxicity of like those other people, then everything would be okay. And some people think that all the deepest problems in my world are out there. You know, the others and the systems and the problems out there. But the Bible is uh, far more brutal than that. Not denying any of the other ways in which there are problems in your life or in this world. But when it describes what is actually wrong with you, it describes you as love sick. You are sick. Your love is sick. And when we begin to unpack all that this means, we can see that the scriptures lay this out in a very um, poetic, profound, and beautiful way um, so that we can actually know ourselves better and understand more fully the beautiful gift that God actually offers to heal our sick hearts. So with that being said, you guys, I want to explore this uh, from Genesis chapter 3 this morning. We'll start there, Genesis chapter 3. Um, if you've got a Bible, I would love for you to turn there and join in with us. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of how humans fell. Of course, saying that humans fell is a little bit of a misnomer because a more accurate way of saying it is that humans betrayed. It doesn't like they just kind of slipped, you know what I mean, and just, oh, whoopsie doodle. They actively removed their love of God and betrayed him, choosing instead to exchange it for his enemy. It's, uh, it's heart-wrenching. 
And here in the story of Genesis 3, which is a shockingly few amount of words, what I am always just utterly just amazed at is the ability of these Hebrew writers inspired by the Spirit of God to put down such epic levels of truth in such small amounts of spaces. And here in Genesis 3, we see not only the the actions of what happened, we can get a picture of the process that was happening. You guys are probably familiar with this on some level, but the serpent comes to this woman and tests her with the simple idea. God is not who he says he is. You think that if you eat the tree he told you not to, that you'll die, but I'm telling you God's lying to you. The truth is, if you eat from this tree, you'll be more. You'll truly live. You'll transcend all the limits that he's placed on you out of his own insecurity and jealousy. And you will be like God. And so the deepest question at the foundation of the human experience remains to this day. Is God good? Is God blessing us or oppressing us? And if you've ever had a dark night of the soul, if you've ever gone through a bad day, if you've ever had a prayer that wasn't that polite or even casually looked in the book of Psalms, you'll know this is exactly what we still wrestle with. Did God tell me not to eat that tree because it'll kill me or because he knows it is so good it would actually make my life so much better and he's really holding me back? That's the question. And the woman, now dealing with this question, is God blessing me or oppressing me, has to process it. And here's how she does it. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And then she also gave some to her husband, who was right there with her apparently. I know, right? It's all, yeah, we get it. Silent idiot in the background. <laughs> just <laughs> Yep. But let's talk about the woman for a second. What is she doing? What is she doing? Now, for some of us, it's just an obvious answer. Well, she's eating the fruit. She's breaking God's law. She's disobeying God. She's sinning. That's a good church word. <laughs> and it's a bad thing what she's doing. And we shouldn't do things like she does. We shouldn't break God's law. We shouldn't disobey him. We should not sin. And it's not that any of that is wrong. It's actually 100% right. The problem is there's not a whole lot you can do with that. Because how many of you know God's law on some level and break it yet still? And when you actually try to answer the question, how do I stop? You run out of answers real quick. Which is why you have to understand not just what she did, but why she did it. It says, and if you slow this down and you ponder what's going on on the inside of her, that she looks at the fruit and then she sees that it's good for gaining wisdom and desirable, and then she reaches out and grab it, and then she shares it. 
And that simple process, my friends, is something that you are very, very familiar with. Do you know what that is? That is the process, my friends, of falling in love. That's how you fall in love. Do you know how you fall in love? Do you know how you fell in love? Let me explain to you how you fell in love. I'll tell you how I fell in love with Hannah. It started with a look. That's how it began. I saw her in that 7-Eleven parking lot. (laughs) True story. Mutual friend introducing us. I saw her for the first time, and man, was she good and pleasing to the eye. But I was just the outside of her. When that starts, the wheels start turning, and you start wanting to see more of her, not just the outside. What does she have on the inside? And then you get to know her. And then you say, well, does she have a sense of humor? Oh, yes. Is she intelligent? Is she wise? Is she patient? Is she kind? Is she fun? Oh, yes. And then you realize she's not just good and pleasing to the eye on the outside. There's actually something on the inside that makes her desirable. And then at some point, you make the decision, I got to have me some of that. (laughs) That needs to be a part of me. I want that with me. I want to have that in my life. My life will be upgraded significantly if I have her. But that started with a first glance on the outside, a deeper glance to the inside, a desire that awakens inside of you to know that if I had that, I would be far better off, and then a taking of it. And of course, beyond that, every, every actual love is, if it is true, shared. It never stays. It always grows and it goes. So when we ponder what exactly is wrong with humans, as it's kind of archetyped here with the woman and the fruit, humans Humans have chosen to misdirect their love. Now, some of the deep thinkers on this subject uh, have fallen in line with a man by the name of Augustine, who's actually an African church father in the early church and probably one of the most profound church leaders outside of the New Testament that we've had in all of church history. And this African church father laid the groundwork that uh, Catholics, the Orthodox, Protestants, crazy charismatics, whoop, whoop, all of us love and really appreciate. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. And what he began to describe as the problem of the human condition, he connected to the reality of the human nature. And he looked at the nature of humans being made in the image of God as a reflection of the nature of God himself. And when he reflected on the nature of God himself, he looked at The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three unique, distinct individual persons that were yet in such tight union with one another, they could only be properly described as one God. A God of one who is really three, three who is really one. And this unbelievable paradox showed something profound and important that Augustine really dove in on. He he concluded that this means that God doesn't just appreciate love, he is love. He doesn't just value relationships, he is a relationship. 
And out of what he's created, making human beings in his image, he made us like him to be relational. Which means that human beings, at our very essence, were made in love, by love, and for love. Human beings are lovers. Our existence is predicated on love. Now, this contradicts a whole bunch of French philosophy that says, cogito ergo sum, Rene Descartes, anyone? I think, therefore I. And modern sort of Western Enlightenment thinking has done just that, assumed that humans were primarily thinkers. But the Bible disagrees. We're primarily lovers. We are not just rational, cognitive beings, you're extremely irrational. In fact, you are a lover. And what you love or who you love actually affects how you think. I know some of you are really offended at that. And trust me, so am I. Because I am an independent-minded Northwesterner that thinks exactly like all the other independent-minded Northwesterners. Wait a minute. No, wait a minute. You know. What we love has a tremendous influence on how we think. If the last two years have taught you nothing else, it's that the divergence of thought and perspective, when you drill it all down, gets down to something deep. Human beings are lovers. And what happened in Genesis 3 is we didn't stop loving. We just redirected our love. We exchanged the creator for his creation. We started loving the gift rather than the giver. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament. He says in the last days, it's going to be terrible. And he describes humans as lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The Bible never says you stop loving. And the Bible actually says you're currently loving. Your love is all the way turned up. You're at an 11. The problem is who you're loving. That's the issue. You're love sick, not love absent. You're not love void. You're love sick. Because as Augustine would say, your loves are disordered. You've taken your first love. And you've downgraded him. And you've placed all kinds of other things above him. And so if this is what is wrong with us, the only way that we are going to get made right or whole or healthy, something has to change in our love life. Something in our very hearts, the seat of our loves and affections, something has to be transformed. And this is where Jesus shows up. How many of you are aware of the first question that he asked people? It's in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist had come preparing the way for Jesus, and many of his followers that upon seeing Jesus decided to follow Jesus because he was the one that John had been pointing to all along. And as uh, some of John's followers start trailing after Jesus, awkwardly semi-stalking him, like 
you know, like if you ever seen the movie Star Wars, sorry. This didn't go well in the first service, but I'm just going to show my nerd cards to you guys just all right away. We're going to be family here in a moment, you know what I mean? But in Return of the Jedi, you know, when Han Solo and they've taken the uh, empirical cruiser or whatever, and they're trying to like use it as a spy plane or whatever, and he says, Chewie, keep your distance, but don't look like you're keeping your distance. And Chewie says, I don't know, fly casual. Like, I think that's what the disciples are doing. Dude, keep your distance from Jesus, but don't look like you're keeping your distance from Jesus. How do you do that? I don't know. Follow him casually. Like, like I'm following you. I might be on a walk. I don't know. Thank you. And scene. Yes. Uh, Also describes half the people in my church. Follow Jesus. Just not looking like you're following Jesus. Side note. That's what they're doing. And Jesus turns around to them because that's awkward. You know what I mean? Don't stalk. That's just a good thing to learn right now. Don't do that. So Jesus turns around and looks at me. Here's the question. Here's the question. Here's the question that he asks. What do you want? What do you desire? And remember how the story went wrong. When humans, their affections and their loves built up into a desire that they placed above God. And so Jesus looks at these humans and says, what do you want? What do you desire? And my friends, there is no more important question for any of you to ever ponder at any point in your life. What do you want? No, 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 no. What do you really want? Dr. Larry Crabb, who since passed away, actually fairly recently, but had some brilliant thoughts on this idea that Jesus builds out of human desires and the ability of Jesus to meet human desires in a way that nothing else can. And as a psychologist, he, he reflected on the concept that human beings were indeed lovers at our core, that we had innate desires and needs within us for love that you never get around. You can try to deny it, but by denying it, you're just trying to like cover it up superficially. You're still going to love something or someone. The only question is, is it, is it an appropriate love that's actually going to love you back and give into your life that which you expect of it? And so here's how he labeled the human desire, the human needs that are within each of us. He said, first of all, that there was core needs or core desires. These core desires are at the very base of the human soul that every single human being is born with and none of us ever escape. Core desires are the desires for an unconditional radical love that is involved and pursuing. It is also for unlimited power that resources you to do something important and significant. You are all made with the deepest need for love and significance. It doesn't matter if you have the kindest, warmest mama in the world that always told you that she loved you. If you don't also find purpose and meaning and significance in life, your humanity will falter and fail. And no matter how hard you try to be successful and win at life in all the categories, if you do not have radical love on the inside, you will also falter and fail. This isn't either or, this is both and. 
And God is both the author of that need and the supplier of that need because of his infinite resources and ability to love you with an unconditional radical love resource from the very Trinitarian union itself. And also the supplier of a plan for your life and the power to fuel that plan to make you into someone important and significant, just as unique as you are, to call you to something that only you here and now can do. Your core need. But we are made for more than just core needs. Even when Adam was made, God said it's not good for man to be alone. Essentially, his core needs were met, and he still said this isn't good. That's why there are also critical needs. Critical needs are above our core needs, and these are the needs for deep, intimate, personal relationship with others. You need it. The myth of a man being an island or being able to be a solitary like sojourner through life is an utter travesty. It's not true. All the scientific data and research suggests that people who do not walk in meaningful, close relationships with other humans have far worse health, far shorter lifespans, and are far more depressed and have emotional and mental health issues. In fact, one of the greatest causes of death in later parts of life is loneliness. I watched this happen with my own grandparents. When one died before the other, and they were living alone, out of state, you just watched their life deteriorate in loneliness, which is why we like, moved as quick as we could and like, brought her close to us. Humans were made for it. Can't get around it. We have a critical need to be known and to know. To be loved and to love. To have people loyal to us and to be loyal to them. And then beyond critical needs, there's casual desires. Now, when I say casual, I do not mean insignificant because this essentially represents everything else. This is everything from you have a desire for Chick-fil-A's spicy sandwich after church today, only to realize for the hundredth time, like, no, they're closed on Sunday. Like, no, no. Like, how many times do I have to pull in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru on a Sunday to remember they're not open on that day? Thank God they're Christian, but why do they have to be so Christian? You know what I mean? Like, why? 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 It should only be one out of seven times, theoretically, that I desire Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, but I swear it's like six out of seven. You know what I mean? Like, anyone else with me on that? Okay, just checking. But as much as it could be as superficial as the restaurant being closed you want to go to, it could also be the mammogram results that you just got back. The cancer has returned. It just got laid off from your job. An unexpected bill. I'm not minimizing casual desires. We all have this need, desire for health, well-being, comfort. And none of it's wrong. The problem is when we place our desires for comfort above our other desires. And when we misorder these desires and loves is when we get into real problems. Now, the truth is, we live in a world filled with disappointments and never have our desires totally and completely met. And when our casual desires are unmet, this produces manageable discomfort. And again, I'm not trying to be cold or callous to people that have some serious things going on in their life, but it's manageable. 
People can find ways to get through it, even if you don't know Jesus. There are ways to manage your life and to figure out the problems of your life, your health and well-being and so forth. Now there's our critical desires. And when those go unmet, this, my friends, produces a deep and immobilizing sorrow. Because there ain't no pain like a relational pain. This is the loss of a close friend. This is the betrayal of a loved one, a uh, a spouse that cheats on you, a child that goes wayward and turns on you. This stuff takes, you can try to pretend it doesn't take this, but pay now or pay later. That's how our emotional lives work. It takes emotional energy to grieve and to mourn and nothing else in life really comes back online until you have done so. It's a deep and immobilizing sorrow when these needs are going unmet. But your core needs, when your core needs for infinite and unconditional love and power for your purpose goes unmet, my friends, that's the beginning of hell. And there is no coming back from that. That's coming to terms that within the universe there is no ultimate meaning. There's no purpose. There's no deeper love behind anything. And so you look over the cliff of reality and all you're staring out into a deep ocean abyss of blackness. And you think about the meaning and contemplate your purpose and all of it all. And when that need is unmet, you look at this complete void of everything. It's just total absence and darkness and all hope gets sucked into it. And there's no handholds and there's no ropes to catch you. And any of you that have looked over that cliff and seen just exactly what that looks like. To look at a world without anything deeper, anything eternal, anything divine. It completely disintegrates you. It pulls your neurons apart. Your bodily cells fall back into chaos. You don't recover. You cannot recover. And there's no one that can save you. Some of you have looked over that cliff briefly. But you know what keeps most of us from looking over that cliff? Distraction and dishonesty. But, maybe we've been waiting for this but for a while. God, in his infinite love, came to people who rejected it time and time again. Look, I can preach a decent sermon to help you with your casual desires. You can find a good counselor to help you work through some of your critical desires. There is nothing that Pastor Tellus, Bishop Brett, me, your friends, your spouse, anyone in this room can do to save you from the lack of your core needs. There's only one. He's the only one who's asking, yeah, what do you really want? What do you really want? You want some more information? Some cooler teaching? Want a little adventure? Or do you desire and long for the love that you were made for? To know the God of all creation and to be known by him. To feel the weight, the weight of his love that crushes you and yet builds you up all at the same time. What do you want? What do you want? It's like walking up to Jeff Bezos and him asking, what do you want? You going to ask him for a stick of gum? (laughs) That's what we do to Jesus all the time. What do you want? 
I want to be comfortable, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want you to be comfortable too. But what do you want? Because sometimes comfort must be sacrificed in order to find me. One of the great tensions of these needs in our lives is how they react with one another. And when our outer, excuse me, when our inner desires are unmet, it puts pressure on our outer desires. Let me explain how that works. Meaning, just because your core needs are going unmet doesn't mean you don't meet them some way. You just meet them somewhere else. When my life is not filled with the love and power of God, when there's not a deep, intimate union with the triune God that comes through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit and a deep fellowship with the Father, when I don't have an abiding relationship with Jesus that's viable and present in my life, hint, none of us fully do. That doesn't go away. I was made for it. I'm just going to apply the pressure of that need onto my critical category. And now all of a sudden, I'm expecting my core needs to be met by, wait for it, people. Have you met people yet? Have you been around them before? People are the worst. And I'm a pastor, so I get to say that. (laughs) People are deeply disappointing. Especially when you expect them to be God. And so when people come to me with marriage problems, most of them are not marriage problems. (laughs) They're core needs. They're God problems that you've replaced with your spouse. And you've now expected not just your spouse to love you and respect you, but to be Jesus for you. And they fail you every single time. And so you complain about their failure every single time. And then they feel the absence of their own critical desires waning as all they receive is criticism. And you just see the black hole that that descends into real quick. Let me show you a story about Mrs. T. So occasionally, you know, our marriage hasn't been the most awesome. It's mostly the most awesome, but not always. And years ago, like way, way back, like 2021, like way... Late December, 2021. (laughs) We had a special date night, just me and her. And uh, we had reservations to our favorite restaurant. And we're getting ready. One of us takes a little bit longer because she has to get everything just right. And so we're already a little bit late going to the restaurant. And as we're driving, I come up to a red light. And my wife says, honey, turn left here. All the dudes just know what happened. <laughs> Everyone else is like, well, what just happened? What just, <laughs> what just happened? <clears throat> A level of frustration rose up from my bowels. <laughs> frustration being the polite Christian word for anger. <laughs> and I knew if I said anything, 
I would ruin all of dinner. So I chose instead, out of my sincere godliness, to give her a cold stare, ignore her, and gun it through the intersection. Why? Why? All she's doing is address, addressing directions to the restaurant, which is a very casual need. Very casual. Does it warrant frustration, anger? No. There's a deeper need she just hit, isn't there? Is it just a critical need? I have a deep need to be respected by my wife. And when she's offering a suggestion about where to turn on a way that we've gone to a restaurant like a hundred times before, I feel as if she's questioning my, con- my like, competence. She's not just adding a helpful direction. She's questioning my competence, which means I'm reacting not in a casual way, but in a critical way. And if I really think about it, it's even deeper than that. Because it's not disrespectful to offer a suggestion. There's something deep within me that's always feeling like I have to prove myself to God in order for him to love me. There's something about me that always feels like I'm never quite worthy enough for his love. And I'm always striving for his love. And grace isn't this, it's this thing. I go to this church and I lead this church called grace. But I don't know that's always the thing that I believe in on the inside of me. And because of that lack of always having to perform and prove myself and look like I have it all together. The second the woman closest to me questions it through this casual suggestion. She's just struck a knife right into my core needs. And she did not cause the wound, but she sure did aggravate it. And this is why relationships, dating or married or single, become so difficult. We are fighting all these conflicts on casual issues when they're really about something deeper. Getting married comes with many gifts. One of them is I get a helper in the car. And I don't know what I do without my helper. She tells me when I'm going too fast, when I'm following too close, which parking spot I should take. I don't know what I do. When I'm driving alone, I'm just, where am I? I don't even know. Where is this? Am I in the right city? I don't know where I am. I don't know where to go. If only I had my helper. but when I actually pay attention not just to the issue at hand but the real issue going on that anger is is that an appropriate reaction to a suggestion no it's not Is this just feeling like I'm being disrespected? You never respect me. That's disrespectful. You need to honor me. Really? Really? Someone having a different opinion than you is suddenly disrespectful? I need to go down and deal with my core 
desires, my core love that still loves that fruit that woman bit in Genesis chapter 3. I still love taking hold of things on my own and for myself, building my life up on my own terms. I still love that. I still love performing my way and projecting a like, perception of who I am into the world. I still love that more. And all she did was expose me. So when I repent and come back to my first love, and I let Jesus' grace and mercy fill me, and the perfect God of the universe gives me his love, guess what I get to do with my critical loves? My friends, my family, my kids, my wife. They are now allowed to be imperfect. I don't need them to be. Category filled. I don't need you to be. You can fail me. You can disappoint me. You can sin against me. I don't need you to be perfect anymore. In fact, all the better. All the better. Why? Because when you fail, that teaches me about the merciful love of my God poured to me. And when you fail, it gives me the chance to love you like the merciful love of God given to me. I get to become more like Jesus when you are imperfect. My critical needs start going through the roof as I'm able to love you with the love of God and not just the selfish love that tries to make you convenient. I came to that conclusion years ago, realizing that all of my criticisms of my wife were trying to conform her to be more like me. And my God, I do not want to be married to me. Oh, Jesus. No. No, 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 no. And you don't want to be married to you either. And that's going to mean they're going to be flawed and sin in ways that sometimes you do and many times you don't. But because my core needs are met, there's an appropriate expectation of my critical needs. It's still important, but it's appropriate. And my casual needs are still there. But I'm not going to replace my casual loves for my critical loves. It's the reason why some of you men are so good at your careers and you suck at home. Because you've taken one desire and put it above the other. And when you bring it back in order... You won't have to sacrifice your career, but you'll find that your life from the inside out will be transformed. I won't need my job or my paycheck to define me. I won't need the respect of people that don't actually know me to build me, but I'll have the people that know me best that respect me the most. And that will do something in your soul that my friends, nothing else will. My friends, we're lovesick. Because like our mother, we still fall in love with things that lead us away from God's love. We still buy into the lie that God is not good, I know better. We still fall to the same traps of loving the creation rather than the creator, God's gifts rather than the giver. And here's the brutal truth that we'll close with here this morning. In this world, none of your desires will be fully met. Prepare for disappointment. Yet, we live between the resurrection and the return. The kingdom of God has come and it's not yet. 
We live in the overlap of heaven and earth in this complicated space where God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, where we have received the deposit of God's presence in our lives, and yet there's still more to come. I am a man that has fallen in love with Jesus, but I still have all kinds of other loves that are competing with it all the time. And so we live in this world where our needs are not yet fully met, but one day Jesus has promised that they will be. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. They will be filled. Those that long for the love of God to fill their soul, that to be in right relationship with others and to actually live the purpose that God has called them to, that will be filled. Will be filled. Will be filled. So my friends... If you are anywhere on the scale falling short of the fullness of the ideal that I've described, welcome to the club. It's called church. And what is more important than the reality of your failings and your sick love is your honesty about it. And to not torture anyone or anything else with some trivial issue that doesn't have anything to do with them. Don't make the issue that isn't the issue. That's why we have to come back to Jesus. And we come back to gather together. We come back to worship. We come back to our devotions. Come back to our small groups. And we remind ourselves to come back to that place where Jesus is our first love. And we abide in him. And then through him, we work out all our other relationships, which are messy and complicated. And for him, we trust him for everything else going on in our world. But we have our order. What do you want? What do you really want this morning? Now, what you came in here thinking you wanted, tell me, what do you really want? My friends, my Jesus will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory. What do you want? Father in heaven, how we receive this beautiful and amazing question. And unlike our mother, we say we want you. We declare we want you. God, there's nothing else that you've made, nothing else that we've made, that we desire more than you, that we love more than you. God, we say that thy faith, even though we fail at that a lot. So God, forgive us and fill us once again with your love. Father, I'm asking for single people feeling the pressure to fill their core need with someone else. I'm asking for marriages trying to resolve their Jesus issues with their spouse. Lord, I'm asking for people feeling inconsequential at work because they're unfulfilled in Christ. Jesus, come. Fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Give us the love we need so desperate in our core. And let the power of God rise up in us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. If during this morning you're already in that place of knowing you need Jesus, you've been trying to replace Jesus with a bunch of other things, but 
maybe for you this is your first time, you actually need to give your love first and foremost to Jesus. Maybe for you, you call yourself a Christian, but you know this is a moment where Jesus is calling you back. If you say, Jesus, my answer to your question is, I want you. Just raise your hand. Let him know. I'd love to pray for you. If you want Jesus this morning, praise God. Praise God for you. Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to fill me. I need you to give me everything you got. Praise God. Father, I thank you for every hand in this room that's lifted to you. Thank you for every heart in this room that's crying out to you now that is awakening once again. God, we've spent this whole church service looking at you and how good and pleasing you are and how desirable you are to have in our life. And so, God, we say, you, you is who we want. So we surrender our lives to you, and we trust you to fill us with your perfect love and your radical power. If you agree with that this morning, would you say amen? Amen. Amen.